Welcome back, members, to The Jacobin Show, and hello, Paul. How's it going, Jen? It's going all right. Uh, We've got a great show today. We, of course, are having on Natalie Shore and Christy Offenbacker. Both are Medicare for All activists. Christy is working at the state level in New York uh, with other organizers to pass the New York Health Act, which, of course, is a statewide uh, single-payer bill that basically has stalled in the legislature for the last two or three decades. Um, So I'm excited to hear about, you know, what's going on with that and what the prospects are for that in New York. And then Natalie, of course, is going to be talking to us about the ongoing fight for Medicare for all, but really what happened to make it stall during the pandemic and what we can do to kind of revive that fight on a national level. Um, So that's going to be great. If you're watching, stick around for that. Uh, before we get into all of that, though, um, the big the big news this week, or should I say over the weekend, of course, has been what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, we don't cover foreign policy that often on the show. Um, and I should, you know, admit up front, it is not specifically my wheelhouse. Uh, but I did think it was important to make a few brief comments on Afghanistan. Um, so I guess actually, you know, I want to first throw a question to you, Paul. Um, and I've got a few thoughts on this, but I I would love to hear your thoughts first. Uh, Why do you think so many people were blindsided by what happened in in Afghanistan? And I'm not talking about foreign policy experts or, you know, the media or policymakers. I kind of feel like the public, Afghanistan sort of dropped out of the public view for many years, right? Um, We know that the war was incredibly popular when it started 20 years ago. Uh, Feelings, I think, turned over the course of the last two decades, um, I think right up until last weekend, you know, it was overwhelmingly unpopular. And I think something like 70% of, you know, voters or the American public said that we shouldn't be in Afghanistan. Uh, But so, like I said, you know, what do you think can explain the fact that the American public didn't really seem to care about what was happening in Afghanistan for, I don't know, the last several years? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is, I think quickly the Iraq war overshadowed the Afghanistan war because, as you said, you know, the war in Afghanistan was popular from the beginning. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not justifying the war, of course, but it, there seems to at least be some connection to a reason of, OK, we were attacked and they're claiming these people did it. We're, we're going to go in there. And you know, I think Iraq war, I think from the beginning was actually very unpopular. And we saw that mm-hmm. with huge protests before the war even began. Right. Um, and I think even throughout the Iraq war, most Americans just knew what was up with it, knew it was a lie. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of just stole the story and that stole all the outrage. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Afghanistan was just, you know, it, it seemed to drag on. Mm-hmm. I think the media also partly plays a role from not really talking about it or talking um, truthfully about what was going on. Um, yeah. You know, it seemed like a good cause, I think, to many people. Um, you know, and I think this kind of speaks to... Um, a broader issue with our anti-war movement or maybe lack of it. And I think it's kind of an interesting combination where I actually think there actually is very broad anti-war sentiment in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Again, looking at the Iraq war before it even started, the protests, Mm -hmm. the largest, I think, in human history. Um, But also, you know, the fact that someone like Trump could run on ending forever wars in many ways, and that was very popular. Mm -hmm. But we haven't seen that, of course, translated into a big movement. And I think 
part of what's difficult is these long drawn out occupations where they're, you know, compared to other wars, limited American casualties, not to, you know, downplay, of course, but n- nothing near Vietnam or other, other kinds of wars. And they've also been kind of outsourced to these private security firms yeah. fighting them, kind of hidden from our view. I think that I don't think it's necessarily that people don't care. It's just harder in that context to build a movement, whereas with yeah. Vietnam, you know, the casualties were worse. The draft, you know, if you were an average person, you could claim you're not political, but you would have to think about well, if your son is up to be drafted. You know, it was forced. The issue was forcing itself into your uh, life. Um, I think the Afghanistan and Iraq war haven't done that to the same degree. Yeah, when you bring up the kind of broad anti-war sentiment in the U.S., I absolutely would uh, agree with that. And I was thinking about how, you know, one one problem with the just duration, the extreme and ongoing duration of the war in Afghanistan is that I think that especially because combined with the war on terror and then, you know, very quickly back to back the war in Iraq, it sort of produced this foreign policy nihilism among the public, I think. And when I say nihilism, I don't mean uh, that, you know, every American wanted to go out and kill everybody. Although, like, sure, I'm, I'm sure that there were some people who did. But I'm just thinking about the fact that, you know, if you're if you're my age, if that is to say, if you're in your 30s, you can clearly remember, as you said, uh, that after, you know, when when uh, the war on terror kind of uh, melted into the war in Iraq, uh, I think that there was, uh, or I, I mean, we know that there was a global, you know, ma- mass demonstrations, as you said, the largest anti-war demonstrations, I think, in the history of the world, um, bigger than Vietnam even. Yeah. Uh, and what happened after that? Nothing. I mean, you know, I think I've said on the show before, th- it's it's not the fault of the protesters who definitely, right. you know, tried tried to stop the war machinery. Um, and, you know, being a tween or teen in that age, you know, I attended some demonstrations as well. Perhaps you did also. Um, you know, funny story. Well, not really funny, but I was actually in like fifth grade when the Iraq war started. I actually remember vividly an argument at recess I had with a <laughs> classmate about it. And uh-huh. I was so, just, so Paul was throwing down at recess yes, and he I did my was part. unable to stop. <laughs> The Iraq War. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but but that is all to say, you know, I think that um, I think that what happens when you when you witness, uh, you know, just mass global outrage or mass global uh, dissent against a war and that not only fails to stop, but fails to slow the war machinery at all. I think that it it is really difficult to figure out what to do after that. And I, I want to say for anybody who's, you know, under 30, if you're in your 20s, that basically means that the U.S. has been at war in right. Afghanistan and in Iraq for basically your entire life. So like you were saying, I don't think that when I ask, you know, why is the public or what happened to make the public stop caring or like why why did the public kind of forget about Afghanistan? Um, I think I just asked that question, you know, not to condemn any member of the public or anybody for, you know, not paying more attention, which, by the way, we have been seeing from sort of liberal media commentators. And I do want to get to that in a minute. But the whole point here is that um, I think that the whole the whole enterprise has been completely overwhelming. Yeah. and, And, you know, and yet at the same time, what I wonder, you know, in this latest incident, I mean, such a dismal failure on display for everyone i think if anything at least it's going to even increase you know the u.s public's skepticism about intervention and forever wars 
So it will be kind of interesting to see how this plays out over time. Like, you know, the rest of Biden's first term and whatever might happen in 2024 and beyond, you know, is it even, you know, I think, call it whatever you want. I think like we still live under not Vietnam War syndrome anymore, but I think the Iraq War syndrome, I think is still alive with us. Um, And I think it is something the war machine is going to have to think about before intervening. Because I think, you know, the public doesn't have much stomach for it. Um, And, you know, I think this is part of the deliberate strategy. Like, okay, let's use drones more Mm -hmm. and all that. You know, anything to kind of like minimize the seeming costs to the American public. I want to briefly mention the Afghanistan papers. Um, So this was a kind of expose that came out in 2019. Uh, And um, actually, let's let's watch a clip of the Washington Post reporter who broke the story and um, obtained some of the interviews and and records and documents that make up the Afghanistan papers. So this is um, what's his name? (laughs) Sorry, Craig Whitlock. The Afghanistan papers are a collection of documents or interviews, most of them, with more than 400 people who played a direct role in the war. And these were interviews done by a a government agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, in which they were uh, confidentially asking people what went wrong during the war. For our book, The Afghanistan Papers, one thing we've obtained were hundreds of additional oral history interviews, government reports, and diplomatic cables What was being told to the public was completely at odds with reality on the ground. We have made remarkable progress. We're not losing a war out here by any means. We are prevailing. They knew the war had been unwinnable. There were literally general, commanding generals saying we we had no strategy, not just a bad strategy. We had no strategy at all. So the Afghanistan papers uh, kind of come out in 2019 and basically confirm uh, what I think lots of people had already suspected, which was that it was a complete quagmire. Uh, As, you know, um, the reporter said, the war was unwinnable. Uh, The top generals and diplomats and uh, politicians knew that and were continuing to lie to the American people, basically. Um, And I encourage you, if you haven't checked out the Afghanistan papers, definitely go to the Washington Post uh, and and look through them. It's kind of incredible, but I want to quickly just hit some of the points that they uncovered, because I think that this is really important. So according to the Washington Post, uh, the Afghanistan papers basically showed that, as I said, year after year, U.S. officials failed to tell the public the truth about the war in Afghanistan. U.S. and allied officials admitted the mission had no clear strategy and poorly defined objectives. Many years into the war, the United States still did not understand Afghanistan. And last but not least, the United States wasted vast sums of money trying to remake Afghanistan and bred corruption in the process. So, like I said, you know, uh, a, a complete failure, basically. And I guess, you know, to go back to the point that I brought up at first, when about, you know, people seeming not to really care or not really knowing what to do with this information. In 2019, when this information came out, nothing happened. Like, no, really nobody cared. Uh, it was out of the news cycle, I think, in, you know, a matter of days. Um, I don't remember many politicians commenting on it. And it was because in 2019, the big breaking news story every day was Trump, Right. Trump doing this, Trump doing that, like Trump's gaffes, Trump's uh, just the horror of Trump. And I think, uh, but, you know, I think, I think as I, as I keep saying, um, I I do think that, uh, you know, 
Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, but uh, the Afghanistan papers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to say, I, mean, I think nihilism is like the perfect word to describe it because I don't remember my exact reaction to the Afghanistan papers, but, you know, I right. think it's kind of like, I saw it. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, of course, this is what's going on. And of course, mm-hmm. this is also what happened in Iraq. But it's right, like, right. but I and others, we all are seemingly powerless to stop it. Um, right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, and yeah, again, I if, think that's what I was. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and it's Sorry. like, of course, it's not that I don't care, but it's like, um, yeah, I mean, what can you do? We all know this is probably what was always going to happen. But we, you know, at the moment, we, we feel pretty powerless about it. So, right. I also want to point out also uh, that uh, basically since Bush, every president that the U.S. has elected has campaigned at least partly on withdrawing troops from Afghanistan and ending the war. And of course, that didn't happen until now. But, you know, just to speak to again to the, uh, I think, uh, unfortunate situation where you have a public that probably doesn't really want the war, barring, you know, a burst of enthusiasm from the be- at the beginning. You've got a public that doesn't want a war, but is powerless to stop it. And you keep electing these officials who say they're going to, and that never happens. So again, it just compounds, I think, the nihilism or the apathy, or I guess we could we could say learned helplessness. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, kind of the, the last thing I wanted to touch on um, before we uh, move to domestic policy, both Medicare for all, and you're going to talk a little bit about trade schools, uh, which is going to be great. I, I, I want to ask you what you think the obligation of the U.S. government to the Afghan people is or should be right now, because something that I, I think am a little bit concerned about is you hear um, you hear lots of people kind of hand wringing or perhaps expressing genuine concerns right now about what is going to happen to the Afghan people who are now going to be subject to the oppressive, you know, regime of the Taliban. And we've been seeing a lot of footage of people scrambling to the airport, trying to leave Afghanistan. Uh, I know that lots of people are specifically concerned about the plight of women and girls, um, you know, who, Mm -hmm. again, uh, are are, uh, people worry that their sort of freedoms and their rights are going to be curtailed under this repressive regime. Um, So, like, you know, I, I have some thoughts, but but first, you know, what do you think the U.S. government's obligations are? Yeah, I mean, and, that, and it's a tricky question because in a way it's like it's almost too late for that. And what I mean mm-hmm. is that, I mean, the obligation is to not fuck things up so bad yeah. in the first place. And it's like, OK, well, we've done that. But it's like it's like I don't trust an abuser now to like rectify the situation if they're still being abusive you know that's Mm -hmm. not the best analogy but it's like Mm -hmm. yeah our obligation was like to not be destabilizing the middle east for the last (laughs) century right um so and you know it's like at the end of the day even if the intentions were good you know totally good like you can't remake a country from the outside you know Mm -hmm. and it's like the the damage has been done it's so deep it's so long-standing you know I, i really don't know what you can do now it's like of course you know, if we lived in a socialist world, yeah, we would love to think like socialist United States could help out socialist Afghanistan in some way, but um, that's not the case. And, you know, I mm-hmm. think just to speak more broadly, you know, I know, and it's not like the Taliban, it singularly comes down to the United States fault that the Taliban exists, of course, but like throughout the Middle East um, and in throughout history, especially in the 20th century, 
you know, the force throughout the Middle East against, um, you know, sectarian divisions and religious extremism actually has been the organized left, whether in the form of liberal, uh, communist, socialists, you know, many countries actually had stable parliamentary democracies. And these were the bulwark against what we're seeing now. And the United States had a clear, direct role in just eliminating, um, and, you know, and literally through like massacres as well, that sort of left base. And now you see what's left in its wake. Um, I mean, one of the best examples many people notice in Iran, you know, in 1953, again, they had a parliament that was functioning. They elected someone who was going to nationalize the oil and they were overthrown. Um, but again, and when you do that, you kind of eliminate the base of civil society that actually wants to create what we claim we want them to create. Um, right. And that's why, you know, I think we should also not accept when some people are like, well, you know, some people just don't want democracy. We can't force them. And I'm like, well, <laughs> right. I think actually many do. But again, we have eliminated the social base right. that would create that in many cases. Yeah. I just want to add that... Um... I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you said. I think that if the U.S. had an obligation, I mean, the U.S. does have an obligation to Afghanistan, but the it's at this point, it's sort of too little too late, as you were saying, or that obligation should have kicked in many, many years ago. Um, I think that now the obligation is to leave Afghanistan. Um, and then I think I just want to, of course, throw out there to accept as many refugees and provide support to them as possible. Of course, that is going to be, you know, another political fight in the coming months. Um, and I also want to say I, I do. So so now, you know, after this weekend, I think almost every major mainstream outlet has run like at least one, if not multiple articles about how women in Afghanistan are terrified and how bad things are going to be for women and girls under the Taliban. Obviously, I understand that concern, but I think that if the last 20 years have taught us anything, it's that they've shown that uh, so-called humanitarian intervention, uh, let alone, you know, quote, feminist intervention is completely a farce. Um, I, you know, I, I, I am not making any excuses for the Taliban. Um, I don't have any doubts that they will be particularly brutal and repressive to women. They have been in the past. We, we all know this. At the same time, when, you know, war is not good for women either. Um, and when you look at Afghanistan under U.S. occupation, I think that the advances that women made under those conditions have been a little bit overstated, to be honest. Literacy among women and girls is still extremely low in Afghanistan, or it was even during the U.S. occupation. I think it was something like 30 percent. Um, it's true that some women were, you know, able to uh, go to college and, you know, go to school and and uh, gain more of an education than they had before. But again, I, uh, I, I, th I think I read that something like two thirds of women, you know, it in Afghanistan, even, as I said, during the U.S. occupation, weren't in school. Right. So again, you know, I think that a lot of these gains have been really overstated. That's not to say that things can't get worse. Of course they can. But we've just seen so many times how this type of rhetoric, the, the rhetoric of gender equality, especially when it's about some people over there and mm -hmm. not here, is right. used to justify military intervention. Right. And, you know, of course, if the United States was serious about this, the first thing they would do is not be loyal allies with the ruling regime of Saudi Arabia. You know, that would be first on the list. Um, and just, I mean, one more thing also I'm interested to see is like from the fallout of this, you know, how is this going to affect the far right globally? Because I think, you know, going back to the crises in Libya and Syria, 
and the refugee crisis that came out of that, I think that was one major component of the rise of the far right, because all of a sudden the question of immigration is very real and visceral to people. And, you know, I suspect there will be another refugee crisis almost out of this. And I think it will be interesting to watch, especially throughout Europe, you know, how that might affect um, the, uh, you know, the, the European far right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, so my understanding is that actually, I don't know about Europe. Uh, is the far right on the rise in Europe? I think it's complicated. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, I right. mean, I think there's definitely uh, the danger of it in certain countries. Like, mm-hmm. for example, in France, you know, the, the far right Marine Le Pen is still very strong. Mm-hmm. You know, in some countries there, you know, the, the right has actually come to power and kind of already right. gone through a cycle of being disappointing in power right. and they might be on the decline again. But I think it's one of these things where mm-hmm. I think it's still very much in flux. And I think the yeah. opportunity is still there, you know, very and much. As, as you point out, they very much take they very much uh, try to utilize the refugee situation uh, to build support for themselves and, and kind of build interest around their party. So, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I guess the sort of last thing that I want to uh, tackle before uh, I, I realize we're getting close to the time where we're going to bring on our guests. Um, so I think we'll just say a few more comments about Afghanistan and then maybe head over, head, head, head over to Medicare for all. Uh, and then maybe we can revisit uh, some of the other things that we wanted to talk about uh, after that. Um, but I, I want to talk about just the staggering cost of war. Um, and I know that a couple different people have hit this, but I saw a pretty stunning sort of set of statistics in, in uh, I think, AP or Reuters recently. Uh, so I want to bring, bring that up now and look at it. So uh, this article collected, as I said, statistics about the cost of war. Um, and I found this part really compelling. So the amount that President Harry Truman temporarily raised top tax rates to pay for the Korean War was 92%. Lyndon Johnson raised top tax rates to 77% to pay for the Vietnam War. Not that either of those two wars were justified in any sense because they were well-funded, but uh, just to put it into perspective, President George W. Bush cut tax rates for the wealthiest rather than raise them at the outset of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars by at least 8%. Uh, we know that the amount of direct Afghanistan and Iraq war costs that the U.S. has, that the US has financed through debt is around $2 trillion. Interest is estimated to cost up to $6.5 trillion by 2050. Uh, and then uh, this was also another interesting statistic. Uh, one researcher estimated that the U.S. has committed to pay basically more than $2 trillion in healthcare disability burial, and other costs for the 4 million Afghanistan and Iraq veterans. Those costs are estimated to peak after 2048. Uh, So, you know, we've been hearing more about the costs of this war. They are staggering. Um, And I want to bring up a tweet by Kasim Rashid, the politician and the author, who sort of puts this massive cost into context by showing what that money could buy here at home in the U.S., Uh, So, of course, $2 trillion spent on the war in Afghanistan. Um, That could end homelessness for the low, low cost of $20 billion here in the U.S. That could pay for insulin for diabetics. That could fund universal pre-K, fund SNAP for 40 million Americans, pay for universal four-year college, cancel all medical debt, and cancel all student debt. Uh, And again, that's, that's staggering. And I think, you know, a lot of the 
rhetoric that we heard, I guess, last year and the year before about defunding the police and so on, sort of got at this kind of like guns or butter argument, right? Like we want to fund social services and not violence and, you know, uh, militarization and policing. Um, But I think the difference here is, as we pointed out on the show before, uh, defund the police by focusing on the municipal budget, I think was sort of constrained insofar as the municipal budget um, can't really pay for as many of these social services as we would like. However, this massive war chest can. So I think that, you know, that we always have to point that out. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what's particularly disgusting is that, you know, while they're paying so much for these wars, they're trying to cut the VA, uh, Veterans Affairs, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes it gets tricky for the left because, you know, we want to be anti-imperialist, criticize the wars while also realizing, you know, often the people fighting them are working class people, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, in certain situations are not always aware of what they're doing fully. And, it, you know, I think this is something that, to go back to uh, Uncle Bernie, um, that Bernie Sanders did pretty well in that, you know, he he had some groundbreaking bills and like actually working with Republicans supporting the VA. Um, and I think that is something good that will strike a balance of not seeming, you know, quote unquote, disrespectful to people mm-hmm. that have served and saying like, no, actually, we want to make sure that we take care of them after the war and not abandon them. Um, you know, so I think that's a good issue to kind of emphasize and say we should be doing that instead of fighting new wars. Yeah. I think, wasn't it Eugene Debs who said, maybe I'm paraphrasing, but said something like the rich wage war and the poor fight them. I think that, I know that Bernie has said something similar like that before as well. And I think that that, you know, perfectly threads the needle of uh, wanting to support working class people who, you know, find themselves enlisting in uh, the military for lack of better options, uh, but then also being critical of the war machinery itself. Right, exactly. I, I, I guess I have just one last question that I want to touch on before we move to Medicare for All, which I think is related to this. Um, and, and that is, do you think that uh, do, do you think that um, the average American citizen benefits from American empire or somehow indirectly reaps the spoils of empire? Because I, I, I think it's a complicated question. And uh, I, I know lots of people have been thinking about it now. There was an article in The Atlantic uh that said, basically, the war- Afghanistan is your fault. <laughs> the, nice. the American public now has what it wanted. Um, that is, you know, on the extreme of kind of the like liberal, like finger wagging or like liberal blame game end. But this idea that all Americans sort of at least indirectly are complicit in American empire or benefit from it, whether they like it or not, I think is something that you occasionally hear on the left, too. Um, so, so I have a few thoughts, but I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that tweet you just showed kind of also shows how, you know, that's a flawed way of looking at it because, again, right. there's so many things that we could be benefiting from if that money was used for um, domestic social welfare instead of war. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I mean, I guess if you're looking at the grand scheme of colonialism and imperialism, you know, yes, obviously conditions generally are better uh, materially in the United States than former colonies, or, you know, throughout mm-hmm. in the global south. So if you really want to make that grand wind about argument, but I mean, this strain is also heard a lot in critiquing social democracy. You'll often hear like, oh, well, you could only do that because you reap the benefits of imperialism and that was used to pay off workers. And again, it's very flawed historically. I mean, Vivek Chiver points out a lot, you know, what when the Labour Party in the UK came to power after World War II, it was the first thing they did was actually give up a lot of mm-hmm. the colonies, um, mm-hmm. not all of them, but a lot of them. Um 
the most advanced social democracy was Sweden, and they were known, you know, as an anti-imperialist country. I mean, Fidel Castro had good relations with them, despite them being, you know, lo- you know, disloyal social democrats. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that argument I think is just very flawed. And again, it's mm-hmm. like even if it's true, I mean, is that going to help us build a movement to stop it? <laughs> Probably right, not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just want to add on to that. Like, I think, of course, I you know, it's true, or I don't want to argue that American, I don't want to argue that American empire hurts everybody around the world equally, right? Like, obviously, yeah. American citizens are not as subject to its harms or its violence as, say, the people of Afghanistan. But okay, if you look at Afghanistan, who benefited from the war in Afghanistan? Primarily private military contractors, they made millions, and then perhaps the like global heroin trade as well. Right. And while this is all going on in the U.S., you have spiking economic inequality, a global or, you know, a recession that hurts millions of Americans and, uh, you know, kicks many of them out of their homes. Um, The opioid crisis, which is affecting many working class, you know, regions around the U.S. Uh, And, um, you know, uh, so. Right. And of course, I mean, how many how many veterans who are suffering from PTSD now, you know, from from that experience? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that's to say that uh, that's to say that, again, to go back to, you know, the tweet or the chart that we brought up about what all of the money that is in the war chest could be funding at home. Um, I think that is a good note to kind of end on for, you know, our, our little comments, our little commentary on Afghanistan right. um, and, and sort of switch now to talking about uh, domestic policy. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, so we are now joined by Natalie Shore. She is a writer for The New Republic. She's also a contributor to Jacobin and a Medicare for All organizer. Natalie, I know you've been on The Weekend Show before. Welcome to The Jacobin Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, this is kind of a strange transition because we were just talking about Afghanistan and now we uh, (laughs) are going to be talking about Medicare for All. But to bring it back to the U.S., Um, I I think we're kind of in a strange moment right now because we're obviously, you know, sort of coming out or hopefully at the tail end of a pandemic, um, you know, national public health, a global public health crisis where healthcare has been, I think, at the top of everybody's minds. At the same time, it does kind of seem like organizing or maybe not the organizing, but the, the momentum for Medicare for all or the kind of uh, media interest in Medicare for all has stalled out a little bit right now. Uh, So I guess the the first question for you is, um, you know, over the last few years, I think, as kind of the momentum for Medicare for all has been sort of wavering, you do see Democrats uh, fighting for, I guess, what we might call incremental or piecemeal reforms. So lots of Democrats are now, I guess, pushing for Medicaid expansions, right, in states that don't have it yet. Um, I know that we've seen Democrats talking about lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare. Uh, And then, of course, Joe Biden has talked before about a public option. Whether that is going to come to fruition soon, we don't know. But I guess the the question for you uh, is, you know, what do these, I, I mean, This is kind of hard because, you know, I don't want to say that these things aren't good, but do you think that they put us on a path to Medicare for all? Yeah, so I think that not every incremental change is created equal. Mm -hmm. Uh, The best framework I've ever heard for uh, evaluating one incremental change over another uh, came to me actually from an interview with uh, Abdul El-Sayed 
who ran for uh, the governorship in Michigan in the primary in 2018 uh, as, you know, a, a Bernie Sanders style candidate was endorsed by Bernie and was then a Bernie surrogate during the 2020 election. Uh, Abdul El-Sayed told me that when he's thinking about how to evaluate a given uh, incremental reform, he thinks of three different criteria. Uh, one is, you know, does it generally expand access to health care or uh, the number of people insured? Mm-hmm. Does it do so by public means? And does it do so in a way that curtails or confronts the power of the healthcare industry? Uh, so I think that that's a helpful way to think of things. If the answer to all three of those things is yes, then I think it's a pretty good reform. It's obviously something that's going to fall well short of Medicare for all, as most things will. Mm-hmm. Medicare for all is a fundamental upending of 20% almost of the U.S. economy, of one of the most profitable industries that's ever existed on Earth. Uh, it's absolutely necessary. But I think that we have to be open to mm-hmm. uh, you know, incremental wins along those lines, as people are in other topics. Um, and so all of that said, I think with those criteria in mind, something like Medicare expansion or Medicaid expansion, where it doesn't currently exist, uh, I'm very much in favor for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the people organizing for that on the ground are pretty strident Medicare for all supporters. There's mm-hmm. a lot of crossover. Obviously, it's it's very much supported by Democrats, but a lot of the people who are knocking on doors, who are really giving their time and energy to those campaigns are uh, Medicare for all supporters, ultimately. And, you know, anyone organizing for these things at the state level, I think, sees it as a way to the federal level. But Medicaid expansion, you know, saves lives pretty unambiguously. We have years of research showing that at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, ensures tens of thousands of poor people uh, in a given state that weren't insured before. Um, I think that's a pretty unambiguously good uh, ex- good incremental reform. Something like just lowering the Medicare age, uh, I think, is a bit more ambiguous. Um, lowering the Medicare age has gotten so much more Uh, radio time than the expansion of Medicare benefits, uh, which I actually think is more important. The fact that Medicare is um, seems poised to add dental uh, vision and hearing Mm -hmm. uh, is actually a huge deal because that allows it to better compete with Medicare Advantage, uh, the private competitor that more and more seniors are signing up for uh, that, you know, empowers private insurance that allows them to do things like pretending their patient base is sicker than it is to bilk more money to very inefficiently care for its paper uh, patient population to try to elbow sick people back onto the public program things along those lines uh, so right now it's illegal for Medicare to cover uh, vision hearing dental but Medicare Advantage can leveling that playing field I think is a huge deal and without doing that simply lowering the age is basically a giveaway way to Medicare Advantage programs, uh, or at least it will be in practice. So, you know, I think that there are some decent uh, incremental reforms on the table. Um, You know, there are still several states that have not expanded Medicaid. Uh, Hopefully the 
Medicare benefit expansion will be seen through. But, you know, of course, that is a Band-Aid on a bullet wound when it comes to our healthcare system. So you haven't yet talked about the third thing, the public option. Um, Do you have any thoughts on, I mean, one problem with the public option is that it's so vague, like it could mean a number of different things. Um, What do you think is likely to happen with the public option if anything happens over the next four years? Uh, And and, I mean, what could that look like? I think the public option is fake. (laughs) Quite frankly, I, I don't think that a credible version has ever been advanced. I don't think that anyone truly supports it. Uh, I think it's a slogan that people toss around as an example of something that's, you know, hypothetically better than what we have now, but not as good as Medicare for all. And people are kind of attracted to the middleness of it. Uh, You know, some preliminary designs have been kicked around or fed to journalists and you you can kind of read them. But at the end of the day, uh, the Medicare, I'm sorry, (laughs) the public option can't address some of the biggest problems that single payer can. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I just don't think that it will do much. I mean, the the versions of the public option that will be palatable to people who think Medicare for all is too far too much, uh, the version that will be palatable to them is basically going to be nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. A few states have passed it. It's done very little. Um, a version that is not palatable to them will run up against the same political resistance that a public option, or I'm sorry, the Medicare for all would, but without the massive coalition and full slate of benefits, the Medicare for all would deliver. Um, You know, ultimately, Medicare for all covers everybody, all but eliminates private insurance, um, has, you know, this very sleek, design, everybody in, nobody out, uh, really streamlines administrative issues because there's only one payer. There's not, um, you know, a million negotiators calling back and forth between payers and uh, different providers, different hospitals, doctors, offices, things like that. Um, You know, public option doesn't do any of those things. Uh, It might cut overhead and profits to some degree. And like, that's good. Uh, But I think people are usually pretty surprised to hear just how minimal a part of our insurance and healthcare costs that really is. Um, So I just don't think it's going to be able to deliver much in terms of discounts. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make about how if a public option, option, you know, had the kind of bite that we would want it to have, it would come up against the same political resistance that we see happening with Medicare for all, um, which, you know, I mean, something that we talk about on the show a lot is that Medicare for all, if you look at the polling and you talk to people, it's quite popular, right? Uh, Definitely among people who identify as Democratic or independent voters. But I think that there are a couple of polls that show that it actually has like surprising or often significant support among people who identify as Republican voters as well. Um, And I think, you know, what that gets at is that the main challenge that we face when we talk about wanting to get Medicare for all is the political system itself, right? Uh, A political system that is, you know, uh, in in many cases, uh, you know, deeply indebted to or bound up with uh, big pharma and of course the health health insurance industry. Um, And then I think, you know, uh, 
facing, you know, barriers like the Senate and other uh, kind of institutions that are less democratic than we would like them to be. I mean, I think that if we, you know, this is this is just like a fantasy, but if we were to hold like a national referendum on Medicare for all tomorrow, where everybody voted on, you know, whether they wanted to pass Medicare for all, like, I don't know, maybe it would pass. Um, of course, we don't have that type of direct democracy. And that seems to be the main problem. So I guess, you know, what I want to ask you is where do you see some of the most strategic or fruitful organizing around Medicare for all happening right now, given that we're up against such a uh, I don't want to say insurmountable, but such, you know, um, overwhelming odds. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you're absolutely right. Uh, The odds are overwhelming and I don't want to sugarcoat that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think in a lot of ways, um, I think that the pandemic has been surprising when it comes to Medicare for all. Uh, To be totally honest, um, you know, March 2020, if you'd have asked me, how this would have shaken out. I would have said something along the lines of, you know, I think that this is going to be um, a really powerful political political moment for Medicare for all. Um, you know, what, what better makes the case for Medicare for all than a global pandemic? Um, but, you know, as it turns out, I think that um, the ability of the government to step in and pay for necessary care on a limited basis um, sort of undercut a lot of those moral arguments in the public imagination, right? So, you know, there there wasn't um, a, a massive, as massive a problem as I would have guessed there would have been uh, when it came to, you know, people being able to get treatment for um, COVID-19, et cetera. So I think that's been surprising. I think it's been, you know, Beyond beyond a strange terrain for Medicare for all, I think that it's just been um, an incredibly. I, this sounds like a cop out. It's been so distracting, right? Like I think for a lot of politics, um, you know, the the pandemic has really um, eclipsed a lot of organizing that's been going on. Um, that said, uh, you know, I think that for the foreseeable future, and there are problems with state level organizing for Medicare for their problems with uh, state level uh, implementation, certainly, Um, you know, states not necessarily having the same resources or not being able to go into debt like the federal government, uh, not, you know, having the same ability to issue their own currency, etc. There are a ton of problems. But uh, what state level single payer campaigns do give you uh, as an organizer is a reason to knock on the door. Um, you know, something to talk to people about. Um, there's a bill, you're trying to get them to call their state assembly person, their rep, um, you know, building coalitions at the local level. I think that that's all pretty valuable. Um, so there are a decent amount of states that are organizing for, uh, you know, various campaigns at the moment. Um, California has been one of them. Uh, You might have heard the California governor is currently in the midst of um, a totally bogus recall election. Um, And so, you know, he he ran on a platform supporting Medicare for all. I think people have been fairly disappointed by how that's gone. Um, But there are people who are, you know, talking about, okay, once, you know, knock on wood, once he... uh, you know, survives his recall, uh, what are what are we going to 
pivot toward. And so I think that there are some local chapters of Healthcare for All California Coalition who are sort of, you know, biding their time, getting ready to start doing canvassing, getting assembly members on board, et cetera. Um, you know, a lot of uh, New York, Massachusetts, a lot of states have um, nascent campaigns going on or um, campaigns at various levels. There are also, I think, a decent, you know, when I was talking about the, the three-prong uh, test that uh, Abdul Al-Sayed offered um, earlier in the interview, I think that there are, um, you know, examples of organizing where it's not for single payer, but it is, um, you know, a way to confront different industry players. So, um, you know, there are certainly a lot of uh, nurses strikes all over the place. Um, you know, there was a uh, very, very, very long one in Massachusetts. Um, you know, nursing strikes happen across the country all the time. I think linking up with some of them on the picket line um, is probably a fruitful mode of organizing. Um, there are a lot of insulin for all chapters in various states who are working on uh, emergency insulin laws. So laws that force uh, Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk to issue free uh, insulin to people who show up at the pharmacy and are unable to pay uh, on an emergency basis. And, you know, that's certainly something that I think confronts industry power. It's somewhat narrow, but, um, you know, the companies have been fighting it tooth and nail in Minnesota and the other, that's where it passed and um, the other states that are going for it. And so, you know, I think it is something that uh, allows people to organize around the morality of what our for-profit healthcare system does and ways to ameliorate it uh, and ways to, you know, meet other, organizers in the process. And, you know, I, I realize that a lot of these feel like small wins compared to Medicare for All, and I'm not going to try to pretend that they're not. Uh, but I also think that, you know, delivering incremental wins um, beyond being, you know, wise politically when you're looking at a certain terrain, I think that organizing with people, getting them winning, um, you know, sustains them. I think mm -hmm. that Part of what you're talking about, the lack of momentum. I mean, it's it's hard to sustain organizing for something that's so existentially colossal. Um, yeah. that, you know, I mean, yeah, we're we're not going to pass it this term. Um, right. I don't I don't know when we will, and that that's kind of hard to tell people when you're trying to get them to sustain a movement. Um, and then I guess my last point, and this feels like it has even less to do with healthcare, but I think that, you know, passing Medicare for all is going to require um, changing the class dynamics in this country, building working class power. And I think that passing the PRO Act is our best short, medium term shot at doing that uh, at the moment. So I think that that's something very important on the table. And do you think the left's growing electoral strength is a tool of leverage to force representatives in Congress to flip in support of Medicare for all? And what I mean by that is this, that, you know, in many cases, I think ultimately the only thing that might move a rep is that there's a credible primary challenger that supports Medicare for all, and they're afraid of losing their seat. So, you know, and as we're seeing, you know, the left is continuing to rack up some success electorally. So do you think that can go hand in hand with the Medicare for all movement? 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that, um, you know, whether it's pushing people to flip or just, you know, allowing more people to find out about it, to organize around it, um, it gives reporters a reason to write more about Medicare for All. I mean, I certainly think that um, the insurgent leftist electoral movement has an important role to play in, you know, organizing not just for Medicare for All, but uh, for a whole slate of left agenda items. Um, I think that those those are very important. Um, but there's only there's only so much that they can do as legislators at the moment. Um, you know, I think that I think that a lot of what they can do is use the the bully pulpit is, you know, use their platform, organize constituents, that kind of thing. So you had mentioned some of the state level efforts uh, earlier. And on that note, um, I think we actually want to bring on our other Medicare for All guest now. That is Christy Offenbacher, who is based in New York and has been organizing to get the New York Health Act passed. Uh, Well, Christy, uh, true fans of the channel will recognize you from the Jacobin New Year's Eve live stream. But welcome to the Jacobin show. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. So I, I guess we should start by, I guess, zeroing in on the New York Health Act. Um, this is a bill that's basically been idling in the New York State Legislature in some form or another for, I think, the last 20 or maybe even 30 years. It's It's been around <laughs> 30 years. It's older than I am, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I guess the just the opening question for you is um, I, I, I want to get a sense of why it's gone nowhere for as long as you've been alive um, and what the current status of the bill is. Uh, and, and New York is a Democratic state, much like, as Natalie was saying, California is. Uh, and we've seen Democratic leaders over and over say that they support single payer. So what's going on here? Wow, what a what a thick and smoke-filled room you want me to empty in uh, probably much less time than we have. Um, but I can say in short that, um, as Natalie was emphasizing, um, the greatest obstacle to winning single-payer, whether it's at the state level or the national level, is class power. Um, and, you know, as single-payer health care would nationalize, or in the case of um, the New York State or state bills would um, make public like a fifth, 20%-ish of the economy. Um, It poses a serious obstacle to all um, private interests. And there are a lot of those and they're very powerful and they have a lot more money um, and power than the left has or than the working class has. Um, So that's the short answer. The long answer is that, you know, it's been around for 30 years. It's um, hit some strides at various points. Every time it's come up for a vote in the assembly, it's passed. Um, But the assembly has historically, or at least um, for the past 10 years or so, been the more left of the two um, legislative houses in New York State. Um, But there seems to have been something like an agreement between um, the assembly speaker and the leader of the Senate um, not to bring this thing to Cuomo's desk, um, knowing that he would not like to become publicly on record as being against something that's so popular. Um, so there are a number of, of things that you can do to, to keep this thing from getting to um, the executive, um, the biggest one being holding it up in committee. Um, this past year, however, you know, we saw, uh, we've seen over the past year or two, um, that the Senate has become more progressive. And so there was a hope this year that maybe we would see it passed in both the Assembly and the Senate. 
Um, but there's an incredible, um, uh, an incredible amount of like politicking that we had a very inside eye into thanks to the fact that we've elected six socialists to the New York state legislature in the past few years. Um, you know, we got to see just um, on the inside how two and three times um, the leader of the health committee would put the New York Health Act on the health committee's agenda, and then it would be removed by the leader, um, yeah. which was um, something that, you know, she, she, I think, and every the entire New York State legislature has been sort of held captive by um, fear of Cuomo um, for a long time, so it'll be interesting to see how that changes. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's a lot um, there's a lot of mechanics uh, that are available to um, leadership to keep this thing off of uh, off of the floor for a vote um, and out of the executive's office. And um, frankly, the other major reason why we're not seeing um, it moving forward in New York is is the amount of union opposition to to the act. So, and that's something we could talk more about. Yeah, so I, I do want to get I do want to get to the union uh, stuff in a little bit, um, but first, uh, because you had mentioned the kind of slate of socialists who are now thankfully in the New York State Legislature, uh, we actually have a clip of Jabari Brisport trying to I guess force the issue um, or or uh, uh, t- talking to uh, bringing up basically the New York Health Act in conjunction with other things that actually did make it to the legislature floor. So let's watch that clip. It should be the right of all workers to retire with dignity. It should be the right of workers to have health care. Retirement and pension programs provide a necessary safety net for workers and their families. We should continue to expand these programs. However, we must go beyond just expanding these programs in this instance. Health care is a human right. That is why our public sector safety net should be expanded to all New Yorkers. I'm voting aye and urge my colleagues to join me in demanding the New York Health Act. As the bill's authors point out, kelp has significant health benefits and is a nutritious food with a growing market. The lack of affordable, nutritious food is a problem for so many communities in New York, and this bill would help us change that. Because kelp contains large amounts of iodine, it is also used to produce supplements for treating hypothyroidism, a condition affecting approximately one in every 300 people in the state of New York. Hypothyroidism is a very serious and potentially life-threatening condition since the thyroid glands produce the hormones regulating metabolism, mental uh, functions, and energy level. Yet, kelp-based iodine supplements are rarely an adequate or even appropriate solution to this condition. While a healthy diet is important, New Yorkers need preventative health care, affordable prescription drugs, and routine, stable access to medical services, all things that they are often denied under the current system. Kelp can help if it's paired with a single-payer health care system. I'm voting aye, and I urge my colleagues to demand the New York Health Act. So a classic pivot from kelp to health care. Uh, Chrissy, talk to us about what's going on here. And um, following from that, how are groups like DSA and you know other organizers and advocates working with some of these more sympathetic legislators to get the New York Health Care or get the New York Health Act uh, out there on the floor? Yeah, happy to. I'm so proud of that clip, um, and so proud of a lot of the work that went into it. Um, you know. Uh, we were talking earlier, or Natalie was, about how we can use electoral politics to win Medicare for all. I think, you know, obviously we can, um, you know, use the campaigns to shift the discourse. Um, we can use it to push kind of weaker center Dems to the left. We can primary out the worst of our obstacles. 
Um, but really in New York State, we've had an awesome kind of opportunity to, um, to build what looks like um, a much more something like a proto party or an early party formation where our electeds are in constant contact with our grassroots organizations um, and DSA has been able to provide sort of a connective tissue between unions and community groups and our electeds. Um, so this kind of uh, came out of the day before Jabari did this, we had um, a massive uh, you know, public rally and speak out at the Capitol because we were four days away from the close of session and nothing had happened. Um, and, and it was out of like genuine frustration that we have all of these legislators who've been elected to on, 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 this, on the New York Health Act um, and have not been able to see it move forward. Um, so their office, uh, you know, who were in constant contact with called us and said, we want to do this. Um, but there are 150 bills being introduced tomorrow and we're going to need to connect every single one to the New York Health Act. Um, and so, you know, it was a team of us who got together and um, really helped that um, that uh, come to fruition as, um, you know, as 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 it should be. I think um, this is ought to be a something that is um, a product of the masses that the legislation itself is for. Um, I wanted to say, can you repeat again what the second half of your question was? I wanted to say a bit more, Jen, but I forget what you asked. Uh, you had touched on it a little, but I was just wondering how uh, groups like DSA or, you know, other advocates and organizers have been working with these legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I mean, literally in New York State. Oh, I remember what I wanted to connect connect this to, which is just like to make the case for these state based um, legislation, whether it's single payer, whether it's Medicaid or Medicare expansion, or whether it's controlling pharmaceutical prices or and marketing and advertising, or whether it's, you know, long-term care initiatives. I think um, DSA is, is strongest in, DSA and other membership-based organizations are currently strongest in um, their state-based formations. We don't have a lot of power at the federal level, so I think it's really important um, to try to find, as, as Natalie was saying, like legislation that can build constituencies and can also build this connective tissue between um, organizations and unions and electeds. Um, but yeah, that's that's really what we've been kind of how we've been thinking about this in New York State, um, both in the city and across the state, is um, that our our electeds are are literally in constant contact with the organization on a weekly basis. Um, we're meeting, we're discussing what they're seeing. Um, and helping them to navigate a very, very lethargic and a very, very yeah, smoke-filled um, room of, of, of Albany state politics. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. one more to add. But. Um, and turning to the question of labor, um, you know, we all know that Medicare for All would actually be really great for unions from taking health care off the bargaining table. And for listeners that don't, don't know, I mean, Often contracts now, healthcare is a dominating um, topic. Unions give out, give up raise increases in exchange for keeping their healthcare. It really is dominating every contract negotiation. But as you pointed out, Christy, a lot of unions in New York campaign against this bill. So, you know, first question is what kind of explains that opposition? And then the second question, how do we kind of overcome that and bring labor on board to support Medicare for all when it's very clearly in their interest to do so? 
Yeah. And Natalie, feel free to jump in on this too. Cause I'm, it's sort of similar on the national level, I think, as it is in New York state. Um, but in New York state, I think we have um, the greatest, some of the greatest union density in the country, but some of the most conservative union leadership. Um, you know, we've heard it said that um, some unions we can imagine endorsing nationally, but um, the union locals and their kind of um, the, the local groups of those unions in New York state um, would sort of never, uh, would never endorse. I mean, part of it is because a lot of unions operate their own health funds, which are essentially like um, private insurance companies for the union. They house um, their insurance in, in shop and they um, employ a lot of workers and spend a, a lot of money um, and make a lot of money by doing that. Um, so that's, that's a big thing that you're not going to hear unions say publicly. Another thing is, as you said, Paul, I think um, the fact is that there's a lot of union leadership who um, are not radical or not, do not want to change the status quo of what organized labor has looked like and don't want to do much more to attract new members to their unions. Um, and unfortunately, that means um, that they're holding up healthcare as the, the one or the major benefit that unions can offer um, with, and, and kind of narrowing the window of what could be possible, what unions could do for their members. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that everything that Christy said makes sense. And, you know, obviously um, unions, as they're currently constituted, haven't always been uh, super supportive of Medicare for all. Um, you know, other unions have been some of its most strident supporters. Uh, obviously, uh, NNU, National Nurses United, um, at the top of the list. Uh, several others have endorsed at the national and or local level, depending on specifics. Um, I also think that, you know, in general, when I said I think the PRO Act is one of the most important things currently on the table that could really shift the dynamics for single payer. Um, you know, as you all know, the the labor uh, the labor movement in the United States is not at its strongest point right now. Um, it's in very much a defensive crouch. I think that there is more conservative leadership who are um, really focused on holding on to what they have won already. Um, and not taking steps backwards in that regard, and that they are, you know, um, opposing uh, something that really would help them move ahead. But I think that in a context wherein unions can be more militant and, you know, can be, uh, you know, moving moving forward, they're in less of a defensive crouch. They are able to, you know, demand more um, for their class writ large, uh, I think that they could start to behave differently. And I think that, you know, over the past couple of years with, uh, you know, what we would consider, um, you know, a resurgent labor movement in some ways or some hints of it, uh, I think that there have been unions that have, uh, you know, elected more radical slates or where, you know, through internal procedures, members have been able to push Medicare for all. Um, one, one example is um, CIR, um, an SEIU union of interns and residents in healthcare, uh, has recently elected a pretty left-leaning slate, and they've really become strident supporters of Medicare for all. I see no reason why that can't happen more. Um, I think that we're not there at the moment, uh, but that that's definitely where we want to get. 
I should say, I want to jump in and say, I, I took like sort of like the most aggro approach that I had to describe in the union opposition. But um, I think I 100% am behind what Natalie um, is sharing here that I, I see no reason to believe that we can't build, um, not even just kind of uh, neutralize union opposition, but build um, militant energetic labor support for, for single payer. And I think I also could share instances in New York where I see that already happening, um, both amongst labor leadership and amongst sort of caucuses of, of members who are, are not vying for leadership at all, but are just educating other union members about their stake in the passage of single payer. And I mean, just on that point, as I think, you know, Chris, we've been doing work with the labor movement in Philadelphia, getting support around Medicare for all. And interestingly, you know, there's a Teamsters local and a um, municipal worker union local that have been more engaged lately and they happen to have new leadership. Um, not necessarily people that self-identify as far leftists, but I think just because, you know, they aren't, they haven't been part of the game that has been played for so long and, you know, certain things that are, they don't take it as an article of faith that you can't consider Medicare for all. And that's been refreshing and they've been willing to engage on it. Um, and kind of related to all this, you know, often, Historically, and when you look around the world, you know, countries have gotten universal uh, health care through either a mass militant labor movement or a labor party or a social democratic party. Do you think in this country like that has to be the ingredient that gets us there? Is it possible to get it maybe without one of those things? And certainly countries that have one, uh, not just universal health care, but uh, various labor or various welfare programs, um, you know, union density is a common ingredient. Uh, and, you know, it is it is hard to see what path forward we have in terms of robust universal leftward programs uh, if it's not for organizing workers, increasing union density, changing the way that existing unions operate. So knock on wood any day now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I think um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for Jacobin that was precisely making sort of a, it's like the chicken and egg thing has been reversed here. <laughs> Thanks. Right. I mean, here we were arguing that we need to win Medicare for all in order to build a mass working class party. Um, but now we're sort of uh, making the opposite argument that we may maybe need to build uh, a bit more of a party apparatus, party apparatus being, yeah, a working class, an organized mass working class um, that is, that is, you know, stridently tied to um, a progressive labor movement in order to win single pair. Um, it's an interesting question. You know, I think the path to single pair is like sort of multi-pronged and multi-year as we've been talking about here. It's not just, um, it's not, we don't have Bernie Sanders anymore to, you know, show the way to this being passed in the next couple of um, cycles. But I think, you know, through mass political education that we're doing piecemeal through all of these different electoral campaigns, um, through, you know, um, fighting alongside local health care fights um, and building, building up like a network of uh, connected community groups. Um, to membership organizations that are tied, hopefully, to their electeds as well. Um, and then, like, writing and introducing more, like, interme intermediate legislation that builds constituencies. I can see us having, like, a patchwork um, way there, absent a, a party formation. Um, but I think it's multi-year multi, multi -year and multi-prong in my mind. 
So I think this will be uh, our last question for the two of you, but I want to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier, Natalie, about kind of um, how I think you and a lot of people, myself included, thought that the pandemic might be an opportunity to kind of move the ball forward when it comes to Medicare for all. It in many ways, of course, it seemed like a perfect segue, right? You Again, you have this unprecedented you know, public health crisis, and it just showed how broken our current healthcare system is. Um, now, like you said, you know, that didn't turn out the way that I think some of us had been hoping it would turn out. Um, you know, even the uh, Emergency Health Healthcare Act during the height of the pandemic didn't really move very far. So I guess the question for both of you is, both at the state and the national level, do you, do you see a way we can still leverage uh, what happened over the last year and a half to our advantage when it comes to fighting for Medicare for all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, in terms of when I said that I was surprised by the degree to which it didn't advance Medicare for all, uh, frankly speaking, uh, I, I said that that's because I think, you know, the federal government did step in effectively to um, you know, very surgically address uh, pandemic-related issues, right? Um, you know, for the most part, people's care was covered. Um, for the most part, they weren't charged deductibles or co-pays for COVID-19-related care. Um, you know, the vaccine is free. Um, you know, some people have still been billed, and certainly there's a large number of people who seem concerned uh, about whether or not they'll be charged, that that seems to have contributed toward some vaccine hesitancy in certain pockets. So I think, you know, there are there are definitely ways that we can see it made a difference, but, you know, not not the classic way before before any of these provisions were set. I thought, you know, the first day of the pandemic, OK, there are going to be people who are, you know, avoiding treatment, there's going to be such a higher death toll than there might have been otherwise. And I think that those things didn't bear out quite to the extent that I thought that they might. Um, that said, I think that there are a lot of ways that are maybe less visible than, oh, I was so scared, like care is so expensive that I didn't seek out care and then had, um, you know, a massively consequential uh, health problem as a result, you know, the, the very like classic uh, paradigmatic stories that we might associate with, um, you know, showing why we need Medicare for all. Uh, I think that the maybe maybe one of the biggest ways that uh, our healthcare system has failed us, I do think, you know, the uh, vaccine rollout, I think the fact that we don't have a uh, coherent national health system means that people don't necessarily have a relationship with a primary care doctor, uh, that they don't have an institutional relationship, and that it's not as easy to, um, you know, not not only like contact people and get them in for uh, their vaccine shots, but, you know, to have a trusted person to talk to someone about their concerns about the vaccine, et cetera. So, you know, I don't know exactly how many people that's affected, but I think that certainly that is uh, a number of them. And I also think that, um, you know, the way that we reimburse for healthcare and like the, the revenues that hospitals take in are based on reimbursement. And so Medicaid patients pay out to hospitals less than 
private and privately insured patients. And so the hospitals that treated the people who were most at risk for COVID-19 were doing so with the most constrained resources. And, you know, people are still going to be studying a lot of this for a long time. Like people will be poring over data and looking at different data sets, et cetera, for a number of years, arguing about what exactly we can say about the pandemic and how it turned out. Preliminarily, though, it absolutely appears as if, um, you know, hospitals that treat poor patients had worse outcomes because they have fewer resources because of how our reimbursements are structured. Um, you know, in practice, in terms of how we can leverage that, I think that, you know, rallying around safety net hospitals um, or hospitals that are slated for closure would be in the same group. So we've seen a little bit of that. Um, you know, one prominent one was Hanneman Hospital in Philadelphia that closed, uh, I want to say, in 2018, 2019. Um, that was, you know, a big a big deal that, like, Philly DSA was out there protesting um, with single-payer coalitions, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that there is probably some, some room for that. Uh, there's also going to be actions related to um, you know, vaccine access in other countries. Um, I don't know, you know, making making the case for Medicare for all is a little far afield from that. But, you know, certainly um, there is a case to be made for decommodified health care, for access, for equity. And, um, you know, Medicare for all people should absolutely be part of that fight as well. Yeah, I agree with everything that Natalie said. Um, I, I would... Especially, um, you know, I think that's something that we need in order to show people that a different formation of the healthcare system is possible, which I think that lack of an ability to imagine that does pose a serious obstacle to our ability to mobilize popular support and active popular support for it. Um, is we, we need parts of the healthcare system to really, really work for people. And obviously the vaccine free vaccines and free testing um, has showed people throughout this that public solutions work a lot better um, than private ones and feel really good and improve your everyday life. Um, but like the basic situation now is that there's been like a massive atrophying of even the most basic public health and public safety functions of the state. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't believe in those things. So I think like Natalie was saying, like we really need to protect our public uh, safety net hospitals. Um, and also like at the end of this year, at least in New York state, uh, the extension of Medicaid through for, um, kind of an emergency period through, um, the pandemic, which applied to everyone who had previously been on Medicaid or was applying for it. You just got, you got put on it. Everyone's going to be dumped off of that at the end of, um, December. And I think doing, we have a lot of work to do to, to make, um, a lot of noise about this and do public education about, the fact that, you know, you how you enroll for Medicaid um, and making sure that people are protected by it. But in general, I, I absolutely agree that, you know, the pandemic showed that an uncoordinated, private, profit-driven, patchwork healthcare system just can't solve the collective healthcare problems of society. We're always going to have collective problems. They're only going to get worse. Um, and, uh, you know, I think even more than when Bernie Sanders is in the race, most Americans can see now that you can't have private solutions to these uh, to these very public problems. Um, I think you know it, it has been disappointing so far to see how that hasn't kind of mobilized and more people to get active. But I think 
during the pandemic, it was very hard because when people are fighting for survival, either because of healthcare concerns or employment concerns, um, you know, they're less likely to be politically active and politically moving. Um, but I do think it's time to sort of make this a matter of national security. Um, you can't to make the messaging sort of around can't have a private healthcare system that exists to deny care to millions of people. Um, because, you know, that's really the only way to make profit in healthcare. Um, and we have to be laser focused and, and centering our message around um, getting eliminating the profit motive in healthcare. Very well said. Uh, I want to thank you both for your time. Uh, there's obviously a lot that's going to be unfolding in the next couple of years. So we'll definitely have to have you back to talk about Medicare for all in the future, both on the national and the state level. Um, so thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. I, uh, I, I always love talking about Medicare for all, but it's also like incredibly frustrating just because of everything that that came up, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it is very important to have people like that who are working around organizing um, around Medicare for all, especially during this time when, you know, it's not at the forefront of conversation, unfortunately, but, you know, it's going to be a long, hard slog. Yeah. Um, and this is the show, right. I guess, of abrupt transitions. Um, so <laughs> we are, um, we're not going to do traditional labor, Paul, but of course I have a labor topic that I do want to cover, but, um, people should definitely, um, you know, submit any labor, Paul questions either in the live chat or as a comment on, uh, the, any videos that come out. But, um, Jen, what I wanted to talk about is transitioning to the infrastructure bill of Joe Biden. So he has been talking a lot lately about, wanting two years of free community college to be part of his infrastructure plan. And I'm absolutely supportive of making um, community colleges totally free. Uh, many of my own students wind up going to community colleges because it's a much more affordable option. So absolutely, community colleges need more funding. But I also think, especially when we're talking about a big infrastructure bill, trade schools should be a part of the conversation. Um, many of the jobs that would be created in Biden's infrastructure bill are ones that don't require college diploma but do require a certification or a license of some kind. And we all know how wildly explosive higher education has become, or wildly expensive, sorry. There is a $1.5 trillion in student debt in this country, and that number is only going to get bigger. For many, student debt is a financial stress that will last well into old age or if not their whole entire life. And it delays big life decisions like starting a family or owning a home. So trade schools offer a much more affordable option especially for working class people. Most trade school programs take no more than two years and often you leave with better job prospects. Students can go to a trade school and leave with a job in a unionized trade with good salary and benefits and no student debt. We are constantly told that four-year degrees at traditional universities are the pathway to financial stability, but that is increasingly proving to be a lie. If you take unionized carpenters, electricians, Sheet metal workers, plumbers, iron workers, and operating engineers often make up to eighty, ninety, or even hundred thousand dollars a year. And again, no student debt. High schools can often be good pipelines to trade schools if they offer CTE or career technical education programs. But as public school funding has been cut, CTE programs have dramatically declined. Today, only one third of high schools in the United States offer vocational education. And this is really the tragedy. And in this way, they're really crushing young people from all sides. If you take Philadelphia as an example, so many students in the public schools cannot afford college. 
or the schools have been so underfunded that they aren't prepared for it. Then they may think they could go the route of learning a trade. But again, the CTE programs have also been cut. So they're not prepared for that either. And they won't be able to get a good paying job that doesn't require a college degree. They're trapped with no options except low wage work. And then we all act surprised when more people turn to crime. The expansion of CTE programs and trade schools should be a bigger focus in this infrastructure bill. And in hand with trade schools are apprenticeship programs, and which allows people to get on-the-job training for a trade while getting paid. And on this score, the infrastructure bill is actually a little bit better. So this is from the Pittsburgh Gazette saying, President Joe Biden announced his support to create nearly 1 million new apprenticeship opportunities, with a focus on the recruitment of women, people of color, and others who have been excluded from such training programs. According to federal figures, 94% of apprentices who complete registered apprenticeships are employed upon completion, earning an average starting wage of above $70,000 annually. Trade schools help get people into apprenticeship programs, and often union-run apprenticeship programs offer superior pay on the job and world-class safety training. So let's look at some members from IBUW Local 569 in San Diego talking about the benefits of apprenticeship programs for young people. You can learn while you earn. Earn as you learn. So what we've decided to do is to invest our time in this community to get the information out about these opportunities so that they can make an educated decision. Um, it's exciting for me to see people that are vested in our youth and not just giving lip service. My belief is, is that if you keep people dumb, you can keep them down. If you can take and get the knowledge, then that knowledge converts to cash. It's, it's a life-changing experience for a, a lot of students who may not even know that this option is available to them. Astronomical, or what the impact can be to or to community. With our electrical workers, they actually start at 16.40 an hour. They get health benefits. They start accruing a pension from day one. And they're receiving periodic raises every six months. So at the end, they're making about $86,000 a year, tuition-free. And come out of the trades with a journey certificate without any student debt. Our goal is to train these individuals to be able to go out and be competitive in our industry, to actually have a lifelong career. As a female, we make the same wage as men do out in the field. And that is consistent all throughout our apprenticeship program. And even when we become journeyman electricians, that consistency stays there. Equal pay for equal work, and that's all across the board. A career in the trades means an ability to support your family, do great work for the community, and leave a lasting legacy. For me, it's really been sort of a, a door opener. It's allowed me to use a lot of the skills that I have, you know, as far as being able to troubleshoot, fix things, build things, put them together. And it, construction really gives, especially a female, sort of a pride of ownership because you can build something and construct something and walk away and say, you know, that was me, I did that. For me, it's been just the greatest of an opportunity. It's been a blessing. So I'm trying to make sure that I don't leave the door opportunity closed behind me, that I share that with others. Because anything that you have that's worth having is, is worth sharing. Increasingly, more and more building trades unions are recognizing the lack of diversity in the trades and are using apprenticeship programs to intentionally recruit more women and people of color. A recent article in the Philadelphia Inquirer highlighted the efforts of building trades unions here to diversify, saying, In response to demand and labor shortages, almost every building trade union wants to diversify the group of apprentices. But the building trade unions are still learning how to reach people who may not have had an uncle, brother, or father in unions, which have been predominantly white and male. 
For a woman, the added complication is that many haven't seen construction jobs as an option. One of the aha moments was not to focus on high school seniors and young women. Across the country, they've learned that many women make the choice to enter the trades in their mid-20s to mid-30s. That's the case with painter Renisha Williams, 34, of West Philadelphia, who was earning $14 an hour doing housekeeping at the convention center. Williams met a female plumber who was working at the Philadelphia Housing Authority site where she lived. The plumber encouraged her to join PHA's pre-apprenticeship program. Now, Williams earns more than $40 an hour plus benefits. Apprenticeship programs can also be critical second-chance opportunities for people with a criminal record or people who have had issues with substance abuse. Let's take a glimpse at the story of Ralph, who's a sheet metal apprentice who started while still on parole. One of the places that he went to was the JTC, which is the sheet metal apprenticeship. He walked in there and he was just really, really excited. As soon as I walked into that shop and met the staff and met the people, I was like, this is it. I didn't know what to expect because I have never been on a construction site before. The first process is getting you materials handling, just getting you on a job site so you're familiar with it and then making sure that everybody has their material they need. And I did that for about six months and then I got my first chance to install. It was a simple task, but it was like, we're going to start you small. And I rocked it. I did, I did excellent. And I moved on from that to actual ductwork. This is technically the biggest ductwork I have installed in my apprenticeship. Everybody needs air. So as long as you're in a building that needs air, sheet metal is going to be around because we have to provide it. What we have here is a sheet metal hammer. This particular screwdriver itself is amazing because the tip will pierce metal. Your snips are going to probably be your third most important. Your duct hoist is your biggest friend when it comes to lifting that ductwork. Your tote tray, I got this from a journeyman who helped me out because he's seen that I didn't have one. I just see a change in him. He's more confident. He has pride in what he does every single day. You know, he's so proud to go to work. He's so proud to go to the union meetings. I was going to almost every union meeting at the beginning of my apprenticeship. So I'd bring my wife and my kids down there and they're like, hey, come on, here's some food. Sit down. The kids can, you know, be careful, but you guys can run around if you want. It's just this really great environment where they like support your family as a whole. If we can start making progress on the Green New Deal this decade, that will mean the most massive overhaul of the nation's infrastructure since the first New Deal. This is the moment to start building up our industrial workforce and offer millions of workers a ticket to high-paying jobs without going into debt for the rest of their life. We'll need to dramatically expand the funding of trade schools to do that. And Jen, you know, when I look at my uh, student loan payments and then I think about a carpenter who's making more than me with no student debt, I kind of have a little pang of regret. The only problem is I, I can't even put together like Ikea furniture, let alone um, build a building. But um, Paul, that's why you need an apprenticeship. That That's true. Yeah, I need an <laughs> apprenticeship. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, just want to say, I just want to say, by the way, you're the king of finding the most wholesome right. <laughs> clips imaginable between what you just showed today and uh, the shop stewards clip that you that that we showed a couple episodes ago. Just like incredibly, incredibly wholesome right. content. I mean, unions are just incredibly wholesome. I'm trying to tell people, <laughs> but um, they're the most wholesome. You heard it thing here you first. Can, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing that, um, you know, trade schools have been in decline. And, you know, especially again, we're seeing like the idea of college being the ticket into, you know, fi- financial stability is just not true for so many people. Um, so I think we need mm-hmm. to ta- start talking about trade schools more. 
You know, I, I feel like I should quickly mention that um, I don't know if anybody remembers, but a couple episodes ago, I talked about Tom Cotton's uh, big plan to or proposal to tax college endowments of like the top wealthiest schools and use the money to fund trade schools. Um, that's actually a really good idea. Right. Now, of course, <laughs> the context in which he was offering this solution was just simply to punish what he perceived to be Ivy League schools over wokeness. Um, I I think we can all agree that Tom Cotton is no friend to the working class. (laughs) He probably doesn't even really care that much about trade schools or blue collar jobs. Um, So so that was like a proxy culture war that he had going on. That said, not a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm for that, basically. So um, yeah, and it's like if we're going to, if we're talking about creating all these new jobs, I mean, you do need a workforce for that. And I mean, in certain sectors like HVAC, which would be like sheet metal workers, they actually are claiming that there is a big shortage out there. And that's the thing, part of the problem, if you don't have a pipeline from existing public schools that have a CTE program into a trade school, like you're not going to get, build up the workforce to the scale that we would need. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that Democrats could be doing more to uh, push for trade school? I mean, like to go back to the Tom Cotton thing, like they should have been the ones to come up with that idea, right? <laughs> Yeah. And and again, I mean, what Tom Cotton's able to play on is like, you know, the idea of Democrats and liberals being cultural elites. And again, of course, the Democrats lean into that by Mm -hmm. being more associated with universities. And again, of course, I don't have anything against universities, but, you know, you could, I think, be appealing to way more people talking about trade schools. And actually, you know, there uh, in Delaware County, which is right outside Philadelphia, we had an election um, a few years back where a lefty was running and what came extremely close to overturning a Republican seat, it would have been the first time in 30 years a Democrat won. And that was actually a big part of her platform was um, mm-hmm. reviving funding for, for trade schools and mm-hmm. almost worked. It came very close. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I, I'm thinking now that I, I think one reason why we don't hear more about trade schools and apprenticeships in the media is because, you know, much like the Democratic Party elite, the media is primarily made up of people who uh, are college graduates, right? Or have have our professional managerial class or are more interested in college as kind of this pathway to prosperity than they are in uh, sort of bolstering or amping up uh, things like trade schools or apprenticeships. Um, and just as a contrast, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, maybe actually maybe like closer to 10 years ago at this point, sort of around the Occupy heyday, there was a lot of talk in the media about internships, hmm. uh, which is, you know, I, I don't want to say the white collar equivalent of apprenticeships, because for one thing, apprenticeships are paid and right. internships <laughs> famously are not. Um, but this was a huge preoccupation of people in the media, um, you know, at the time, myself included. Um, And I think it was because, you know, so many people in the media had had to do internships before they became journalists or, you know, uh, NGO, you know, um, uh, personnel or whatever. Um, But that just goes to show how, you know, certain things kind of catch on in the media and other things like trade schools don't precisely because of the types of people who are working in those organizations. Right. And, you know, we should be very wary of, hearing the term job training from neoliberals, because often what it is, it's an, you know, an excuse of a program in lieu of an actual jobs program. And that, right. and again, what's good with apprenticeship is that, you know, you're not doing, creating this job training for jobs that don't exist. You provide the jobs first and people will be trained as they're working. Um, and something, you know, 
Baird Russin used to always say is like, you know, look at what we did during World War II. We basically just like, you know, fast track to full employment and we built planes and tanks and all this crap. We didn't need all these like job, fake job training programs in order to do that. Like if you create the jobs, um, you can do the training while, while people are, you know, in the process of working those jobs. Right. All right. Well, I just want to quickly again say that if you have any questions for Labor Paul, um, please drop them into the comments. Uh, next, I think next week we're going to do a pretty big labor episode, so we're yeah. going to try to. Uh, Paul, Paul's ready for it. Uh, so, so definitely get your questions in, and we'll try to take some of those. Um, and I think you know, on that note, um, I thought this was a great right. talk. I covered everything: Afghanistan, healthcare, yeah. trade schools, everything. Everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's it for me. So, Paul, yeah. uh, any final final words? Um, no, if you find any useful, um, good, um, wholesome union content, just send it my way, and I will incorporate it in the next episode. We'll do it. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night.